says, I love my fiance very much, but you see, I've, I, I have and I've always had a problem. I've got very smelly feet. He said, and I'm afraid that my future wife will be put off by them. His dad said, no problem, I'll give you some ideas. All you have to do is wash your feet as often as possible and always wear socks, even to bed. Well, that seemed reasonable and workable, so that's what he decided to do. The bride-to-be, overcoming her fear, decided to take her problem to her mom and said, Mom, I've got a problem. I'm concerned about my marriage. She said, Honey, what is it? She said, Well, Mom, you know, I've got really bad breath, particularly in the morning. I mean, I can't even stand to smell it myself. So her mom said, That's okay. What you do is don't say a word. Immediately turn away from your husband, run to the bathroom, brush your teeth, then come back in and say, Good morning. So... They got married. Six months went by without any incident whatsoever. It's beautiful. Things are working out great. One morning, however, the husband wakes up and he's panicking. And he's shuffling around and he's looking all over the place. And and he had lost one of his socks. And the wife, not even thinking about it, turned around and said, What is it, dear? And he went, Oh, man, you ate my sock. You know, I hear these scattering of booze, and I I just wonder, how much did you pay to get in? (laughs) Truth be known, most if not all of us try to hide our faults from one another. You know, and while we may succeed to some degree, the Bible warns us that according to Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It says, And there is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. You know, in our ongoing study of the book of Romans, we saw in Romans 2.16 that God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. God has a way of exposing sin, of bringing it into the light so that we can recognize it for what it truly is and hopefully respond in a way that's appropriate before God. You know, in our ongoing and now rapidly concluding study of the book of Romans, God reveals what has always been a major problem with God's people, and that is the problem of disunity. From the Old Testament records of civil wars and family feuds among the people of Israel to the divisions that are mentioned in almost every church of the New Testament, disunity is a common problem and that God does not, one, that God does not try to sweep under the rug. Consider some of the examples that are given to us in just the New Testament writings alone. The Corinthians were divided over human leaders, who they would follow, who baptized who. Some of them were even suing each other and taking each other to secular courts. The Bible says that the Galatian saints were biting and devouring one another. Just a picture of just chewing, just biting each other and just chewing each other up and spitting each other out. In Ephesus and Colossae, They had to be reminded of the importance of Christian unity. And in the church at Philippi, there were two women that were there that were, their fighting among each other was so bad that it was dividing the church and people were taking sides as to who they agreed with and who they lined up with. And I thought, wow, how appropriate it is as we come to this particular passage that, uh, you know, in a nation that obviously is so divided as we look at what's been going on and continues to transpire as far as the election is concerned. And the wonderful window, by the way, of opportunity that God continues to give His people to continue to pray for an outcome that will result in righteousness and in holiness. So, you know, if we want to be persistent of something, I wonder how many of us were persistently praying two or three weeks ago that somehow or another have lost interest. 
And I think it's just a test of our persistence in our prayer for righteousness and holiness and godliness. So continue to pray because it's far from over, but we need to continue to pray, and as we do, God's will will eventually be revealed. As I was praying just concerning that as a sidetrack, you know, I was reminded of the prayer of King David who prayed persistently and he fasted and he mourned over the, over the sickness and the illness of his son that was conceived at an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. The Bible says that David continued to pray and he mourned and he fasted as he appealed to God and, and waited for God to reveal his will. But once the will of God was revealed, the Bible said that David got up off his knees, he went and he took a shower and he went and he ate because God had clearly revealed what his will was in that case that that child would not live. And so as we await God's will to be clearly revealed, we are to be persistent in our prayer for that which is righteous before God. Anyway, before we examine our passage, as we take a look at this whole idea of disunity among believers, we need some help when it comes to trying to figure out and understand what we're to do when Christians disagree. Before we examine our passage, we need to understand what was causing the problems of division that's exposed for us in Romans chapter 14. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there because that's eventually where we're going to end up. But as we'll see, some of the problems stem from the backgrounds of the believers in, these, in this particular church and in the churches that were just mentioned. You know, whether we know it, realize it, like it, or even understand it, many of us bring in certain perceptions or preconceptions of what we think we are to be once we become Christians. And a lot of that is influenced by our backgrounds and those things that we were exposed to prior to coming to faith in Christ. And so we have some preconceptions, we have some prejudices, we have some uh, understandings in our mind of what we think we should be or how we should live or how we should respond or how we should act. In this particular passage, there's going to be some problems that are identified because there was division that was being caused by the backgrounds of the people The Jews, for example, were saved out of a strict legalistic background that would be difficult for them ever to forget. And as we saw even throughout the book of Romans, we saw that there were many Jews who believed, for example, before a Gentile could become a Christian, he first had or she first had to become a Jew. There were many who believed that before you could be saved from your sin by faith in Christ and in Christ alone, that you had to somehow or another, uh, whether it was be circumcised, whether it was to obey some other aspect of the law, they believed, in fact, the the first church council in Acts chapter 15, the subject matter was the disagreements that had arisen as to what constituted a Christian. Did you have to be come a Jew first if you're a Gentile, and that was kind of an intermediate step before becoming ultimately a Christian. Did you have to give up certain things? Do you have to do certain things? And there was much confusion that was there. You know, did Christians have to follow the law in order to then be saved? But we've already learned, as God has told us, that the law, the purpose of the law, or the regulations of God, the do's and the don'ts, the purpose of all of that was to be a tutor or a teacher to lead all of us to faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Because we can't do what God said needed to be done to be holy and righteous. Because within us, God said, there is a sin nature. Just as through Adam, sin entered the world, it entered into each one of us. We've all been born with a sin nature. Therefore, God says, here's my holy standard, and because of that sin nature within us, we can't do what God says we need to do. And the purpose of the standard was to expose what many of us don't believe is true of our lives, and that is that we are sinners condemned by God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the purpose of the standard is to help us to see what God says about each and every one of us is true. But see, they were thinking that if we could keep the law, then somehow or another we would be right before God. And God said, you can't do it. 
You've tried and you've failed miserably. And so as we consider this, that was the background. The Gentiles never had to worry about diets, for example, or what, what days to observe as holy days or special days or whatever. They came from backgrounds that they didn't observe or recognize any of those things. And so now you put all of these people together and the believers in Rome were divided over special diets and special days. We'll talk a little bit more in more current terms as to what some of those things could be. But some of the members thought it was a sin to eat meat so they ate only vegetables. And other members thought it was a sin to, observe, to not observe certain Jewish holy days. See, if each Christian had kept his own personal convictions to himself, there wouldn't have been a problem. But the problem began as they began to criticize and judge one another and try to line themselves up with people who thought the same the way that they did, and they were split into two opposing camps. One thought you had to do things this way. The other said, no, you don't have to do things that way. And if they would have kept their individual personal convictions to themselves, they never would have had a problem. But as is so often the case, many of us don't keep our personal individual convictions to ourselves. See, now before we become too judgmental and looking at what we would consider maybe today ridiculous reasons to cause division in the church, whether you ate meat, whether you didn't eat meat, whether you went and observed a certain day, whether you didn't observe a certain day, before we become too judgmental as to those reasons that cause divisions, I want to throw out some modern day examples of similar gray areas of life that I have found to be true of, let's say, other churches. <laughs> other churches that we all hear about, but we just can't even begin to understand because it's, they're the kind of things that don't happen here. For example, there are churches, I've heard, who have disagreements over whether a person should go to Sunday school class or what they call maybe an adult Bible fellowship or the main worship service. See, and if they only went to one, which one should they go to and which one, if they went to, would make them more godly? There are other churches, for example, who disagree over whether people should be involved in small groups that meet during the week. There are some churches that get divided over whether people should go to a Bible study, a Sunday school class, and a main service, and a Sunday night service, and a Wednesday night service. Or now, new contemporary, Saturday night services. There are churches that actually, there's division and disagreement over things like that. There are churches that are divided over where baptisms and communion should be celebrated. There are some that are divided over whether you should have worship music in a Bible study or how big a Bible study should ever get. There are churches that actually are divided over things like that. Now, what even gets more interesting to me is that doesn't even begin to touch on the other gray areas of life, such as how we should all dress or what we should watch, if anything. Should Christians go to movies or watch TV? Or if you go to movies, should you go to our movies or just PG? Should they drink alcoholic beverages? Wine with dinner? Beer for breakfast? <laughs> Had to throw that out because I feel a little tension in here. Whether, they should, whether Christians should smoke cigarettes or cigars or pipes. See, it's important to recognize and agree that some activities we know are wrong. And we know they're wrong because the Bible clearly condemns them. 
Other activities we know are right because the Bible clearly commands them. But when it comes to areas that are not clearly defined in Scripture, we find ourselves needing some other kind of guidance, and that's exactly what we'll find in Romans chapter 14. Paul explains how believers could disagree on non-essentials and still get along with one another. There are three things we must do to encourage and promote unity. And I've, used, I've chosen to use an acronym that I hope will help all of us to remember this very clearly. And the acronym very simply is REP instead of RIP. And uh, the REP stands for Rep Repetition. Reps. If you've ever worked out or if you've ever been involved in a discipline such as that, then you know the value and the importance of reps or repetition. A rep, the purpose of it. If you've ever lifted weights, for example, you might do three sets of ten repetition with lighter weight just for definition. If you want to go with bulk and more strength, you might do three sets of seven reps. And the purpose of that is to repeat the same motion over and over again for the purpose of isolating certain muscles for physical growth. So reps are repetition. Anyone that's ever, for example, ran track or been involved in any type of activity, whether it's football or basketball or soccer, in which you have to build up your lung capacity, knows the importance of repetition. You would run repeated repetition or reps around a track, for example, or you would run four or 10 40-yard dashes, uh, 10 50-yard dashes, maybe 800-yard dashes. You run the 100 yards, and then you might jog back. You might sprint them again, jog back, sprint them again, jog back. If you've ever watched anybody that's been involved in a discipline like that, you realize that there are certain things that are repeated on a regular basis. And the purpose of the repetition is to cause physical growth and also so that it becomes second nature. And so I thought, wow, what a beautiful illustration of the truth that's being taught to us here because we are going to have an opportunity to repeat the behavior that is promoted and, and commanded to us on a regular basis to the point where not only we develop spiritually, but it almost becomes second nature, so to speak, in a way that's pleasing to God. How can Christians, or what should Christians do when we disagree on the gray areas of life. God says that we should repeat a command that he gives us that's in Romans chapter 12. And I want to start with the R, but we need to look at Romans 12. I mean, Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. When Christians disagree, what should we do? Romans chapter 14, beginning with the verse 1, we read this. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let, him, not, let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand." It says, one man regards one day above another, another regards every day just alike. Let each man be fully convinced or convicted in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. 
For this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. As we look at this acronym that's thrown out here, uh, the first thing that stood out as I was going through and studying this was that the Bible commands us to receive one another. To receive one another. Now what you're going to do is you're going to notice as we go through this, not only are we told this in this first section, but we're going to look at the last verse of our passage, which is going to be in the 15th chapter, verse 7. We see that the section begins and ends with the same admonition. And the Greek word translated accept is translated accept or receive. And it's a command, it's not a suggestion. In the New Testament, the world always connotes this, a personal and willing acceptance of another person. A personal and willing acceptance of another person. Turn back a book to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28 gives us a beautiful picture of what idea is being conveyed here. In Acts chapter 28, look at verse 2. This is following a shipwreck. In fact, in verse 1 it says, And when they had been brought safely through, speaking of the shipwreck that had taken place, then we found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire, and here's our word, and they received us all. They received us all. Notice the picture that's there, a picture, a picture of welcome, a picture of warm response, a picture of, man, you know what, we're glad to see you, we're glad we can help you, we're glad to be here at this particular point in time, here and now, that we can do something that would be of a practical benefit to you. It's a beautiful picture of the, and explaining of the word that we see where it talks about receive them all. The gracious hospitality of the Malta natives was shown as they kindled the fire, and it says, and they received us all. In other words, they were made to feel welcome. They were made to feel at home. You know, back in Romans 14, here Paul was addressing those, if you go back, that were strong in their faith. That is, those who understood that their freedom in Christ and they were not enslaved any longer to diets or holy days. The weak in faith were immature believers who felt obligated to continue to follow the rules concerning what they ate and where they worshipped. You know, what's fascinating to me is that many people believe that the more spiritual a person is, the more rules and regulations they follow. I want you to notice something that's very interesting to me because God says completely the opposite. He said it was the immature believers in Rome who continued to follow the rules and the regulations that were laid out in the law. They thought they had to continue to do the same things in addition to having come into faith in Christ. They thought they still had to do all the rules and the regulations that were laid out for the purpose of leading someone to Christ. He said the more mature believers realized and came to enjoy the freedom, this newfound freedom that they had in Christ, that they no longer had to worry about if they, went to ch if they didn't go to church, they were going to hell. I mean, do you realize there are people in the world today, and I know personally from a background that we have, that if you miss church, that was a sin that was unforgivable unless you went and confessed it, that you were going to hell. Now, you stop and think about this in light of what was going on. There were people that were thinking, if we ate meat, we were not saved anymore. 
that we somehow lost our salvation if we didn't observe those holy days, that we had lost our salvation, that it was not just faith in Christ and his work on the cross and his power of his resurrection, it was faith in Christ, his work on the cross, the power of his resurrection, and how we lived our life. Jesus didn't do enough for us. We had to now add all these other things that need to be done in order to be right before God. You know, it was the immature believer that God exposed to the person who didn't understand faith in Christ and in Him alone, the power of His resurrection, the sufficiency of His crucifixion. It was the immature believer that said, man, we know we got to make sure that we can keep doing all these things. What's fascinating as we go through this, many people have that idea, and it's just not true, that we Christians were judging and condemning those who found freedom in Christ, and the strong Christians were despising the weak ones for not understanding that yet. But the Bible says in spite of these differences, we are to receive one another, we're to welcome one another. And you say, well, why? Well, here's four reasons that he gives us. The first one we found in the first three verses, and that's this. We're to receive or welcome one another because God receives and welcomes other Christians. We should do the same thing. We are to receive one another as God has received one another. As God has received each of us, we are to receive one another. It doesn't get any clearer than that. In Romans chapter 14, we're told very clearly, God has received or God has accepted all believers. It is not our responsibility to decide the requirements for Christian fellowship in a church. Only the Lord can do this. And to set up man-made restrictions on the basis of personal prejudices or even personal convictions is to go beyond the Word of God. And when we go beyond the Word of God, we create division and not unity. It is not our position as believers to impose on others our personal convictions or prejudices that go beyond what is clearly taught in Scripture. On what basis has God received us? On the basis of whether we eat meat or not? On the basis of whether we go to church or not? On the basis of whether we go to a Sunday school class and a service or just a service and not a Sunday school class? On the basis of whether we go to a Sunday evening service or on a Wednesday evening service or a Saturday night contemporary service? on the basis of where we were baptized or celebrate communion, on the basis of whether we go to movies or not, PG movies, R movies or not, whether we like sports or we don't, whether we drink alcoholic beverages or not, whether we smoke, chew, or run around with women who do. I mean, is that how God receives us? And the answer is clearly no. On what basis does God receive His people? On one basis and one basis only those who have come to recognize that they are guilty before God, the Bible says, as sinners who repent from that sin and turn and trust the word of God that Jesus Christ is the only way to find forgiveness, that his death on the cross is sufficient for all who believe, that his resurrection indicates the power of God to forgive us and to give us eternal life. The Bible says that on that basis and that basis alone, and many has received him, speaking of Jesus, to those who receive Christ, God has given us the name children of God to those who believe in his name. On your own, read John chapter 6, because many came to Jesus and said, what are the works of God that we must do to be right before God? And Jesus said, there's only one work of God that you believe upon him, speaking of Jesus, whom God has sent. We are received by God on that basis and that basis alone. And if that's the basis by which God receives us, 
then that is also the basis by which we must receive and accept one another. See, Peter had a problem with, with the Gentiles. When he took the Gentiles the gospel, the church, the church criticized Peter because he sat and he ate with these new Christians. And if you know anything about the book of Acts, you know that he struggled and he struggled with what he could eat and what he couldn't eat because these Gentiles didn't have all the restrictions that the Jews had as far as diet was concerned. And the other Jews criticized Peter because he sat at the table and he ate with these people. And God clearly told him and revealed to him that, you know what, and Peter didn't learn quickly either. It took three different times for God to instill upon Peter's heart that it was okay. What God had now made unclean, let not man make... What God had now made clean, let not man make unclean. And the argument was very simple that he laid out. And he said, I was there and I saw that I saw Gentiles who prayed and trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. And God gave them the same Holy Spirit that He gave to us. They were saved by faith in Christ and in Him alone. And we are to receive them on the same basis by which God received them. We're to accept them as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to receive them and make them feel welcome and at home because we are now, all of us, a part of the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. As I was studying this, preparing it, I'm standing at the bank and I'm at the teller window and, and I'm taking care of some business. And I didn't think much of it. There was a guy standing next to me and I uh, didn't really pay much attention. And, and I saw this person that was standing there start to move toward me out of the corner of my eye. Didn't pay much attention until he put his arms around me. And he put his arms around me. I started to turn to look, but I saw his face coming to me, and he planted a big kiss on the side of my face. <laughs> now, now, that'll break up the monotony of standing in a, in a bank teller line. <laughs> but but, but like, I, I kind of got caught off guard, and I turned and looked, and there was like 8 to 12 people waiting in line watching all this. And they had these really funny looks on their faces. And, and quickly, I thought, hey, you know what? I said... And I called him by name and I said, how's your wife and son? <laughs> and, and, and what he did, he came over and he, and he gave me a hug and he said, hey man, I just want to tell you that I'm finally getting my priorities right. right. I'm finally putting the Lord first in my life. And I just want to thank you and I want to, and I want to just say thank you and encourage you because you, you made a difference in my life as you encouraged me and challenged me in my walk with Christ. And I thought, man, what a beautiful picture that is of what it means when the Bible says greet one another with a holy kiss. Of feeling welcome and and feeling like you're you're a part of a person's life who you've encouraged in their walk with Christ. See, that's exactly the picture that we see here. They were received by them. They were welcomed by them. They were received by them as God receives us as brothers and sisters in Christ and in Him alone. I thought, wow, it's beautiful. You know, we live in a hostile world. When you go to work or you go to school or, or, or you go to your, your families for reunions and for holiday meals coming up, we live in a world that's hostile to God and the things of God. And we expect such hostility in that environment. When I walk into a locker room, man, there are people there that would, if they could, they'd kill me. And I know that. I can see it in their eyes. But that's all right because that's the world we live in and that's the world Christ sent us out to preach His love and His gospel. And I'm not ashamed of that gospel because, as Paul said, it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. See, we need to recognize that's the world we live in. But you know what? When brothers and sisters in Christ get together, that should no longer be the world that we live in, that hostile world, the world of sneering and the world of criticism and and the world of judgmentalism and all that goes along with it. When you and I come together, we should feel like we're coming to the greatest family reunion that's ever taken place. 
when we come together and we see each other in passing, and, it, and it, it saddens me and it breaks my heart that we would allow these gray areas of life to erode on the foundation that's been laid in Christ. It saddens me that, you know, as I'm walking sometimes on this campus and I see people who choose to go to the first service instead of coming to this Bible study, that somehow they'll look the other way as if somehow or another they don't have the freedom in Christ to do that or they have to explain to me uh, why they're going there and not coming here. And that breaks my heart because my attitude is this. For any of us, if there's anywhere that you can go that will encourage you and increase your walk with Christ and your growth in the Lord and your challenge by the Word of God, we should have vans and buses to take you there. We should never feel guilty or obligated to explain to anybody why we do anything in those areas of personal convictions, those gray areas. If you choose not to come here and you're not here and somebody's giving you a tape, God bless you. But as long as we're following the Lord and we're growing in our faith and our love for Him and one another. See, that, that, that's, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. That's what it means to receive one another. Just as God in Christ has forgiven us, so we are to receive one another. I think that Augustine said it best when he said this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. Love. The world will know that we're believers by our love for one another. Not our criticisms. Not our judgmentalism. Our love for one another. The second reason that we are to receive one another is found in verse 4, and that is the Lord sustains us. Notice that. Who are you to judge the servant of another? I love that. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Can you imagine going to someone's house who invites you for dinner, and they hired somebody to cater, and you don't like what they did, and you start yelling at them? I mean, can you imagine how inappropriate that is? Or, for example, out on job sites where we've got our employees who are out working, representing us, for someone to start yelling at our employees violates protocol. It's like someone else yelling at one of your kids while you're sitting there. Now, you may give them a look like, hey, I think you should step in here, and it may not be a bad idea right now, but as long as that parent is in the room, I'm not going to be the one who's going to discipline that person's child. That's just not appropriate. I may say kind of casually, is your mom and dad here? <laughs> That's always a hint that they kind of pick up on. You know, it's like the one where you got company, they just won't leave, and you say, hey, uh, why don't we go head up to bed so you good folks can go home? You know, th- just that type of thing. You know, there's always ways to say it, you know, in, in a gentle way, persuasive way. But, but the, the point is this, you know, the Lord sustains. Notice what he says, who are you to judge the servant another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The strong Christian was judged by the weak Christian. Paul condemned it because it was wrong for the weak Christian to judge or take the place of God in the life of the strong person. God's the master of all, and the Christian is the servant. It's wrong for anyone to interfere with this relationship. we got a master-servant relationship. It's none of our business. That's between them and God. Let them and God work through that together. It's none of our business to do that. You know what's wonderful to me is as I've read through this, it is so encouraging to know that our success in Christian life doesn't depend on the opinions or attitudes of other Christians. Isn't that cool? That's so good. I love that. Praise God, huh? Do you understand what I just said? If so, you'd be smiling a lot more than you are. That's awesome, man. You know what? That's wonderful. You know, my Christian life doesn't depend on your opinions or attitudes toward me. That's beautiful. Why? Because I stand before the Lord and God will judge me. Isn't that wonderful? Man, that is just, that's terrific. See, here's the deal. If these people in Rome 
were busy individually serving their master and sharing the gospel with the lost world, they wouldn't have had time to sit down and evaluate the performance of one another. If you're sitting around evaluating the performance of other Christians, you've got way more free time on your hands than I find that you should according to the Word of God. You are to be busy serving Him. And blessed are those who are found doing so when Jesus returns. Nothing ever tells us blessed are those who are found evaluating and judging the lives of other Christians as if somehow or another we're going to pick Jesus' cabinet for him when he comes back. (laughs) We're not asked to do that. But we are told to serve him. He is able to make us stand. We sang that. We saw that. God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Romans 8, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things, nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our performance before God is not what sustains us before God. We are sustained by faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. That's why Jesus said, I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Jude 24, we read him and to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of glory, blameless with great joy. Hebrews 7.25, Christ is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Philippians We're told that he who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And we are protected by the power of God through faith in Christ and in him alone. It is Jesus Christ who sustains us before God and not our performance and certainly not our judgment of one another. The third reason we're to receive one another is that the Lord is sovereign. It's the Lord who's sovereign. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. It says, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord. He who gives thanks to God. He who is, eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the living and of the dead. You notice what he says? He said, man, you know what? Here's the bottom line is this. There's only one God and you and me aren't him. And so whatever you choose to do, if you choose it as an offering to the Lord, not confusing whether it has anything to do with your salvation, but because of personal convictions, and that's the key, your own personal conviction. Eat meat because you're convicted before God not to, not because you're confused about the doctrine of salvation and you choose not to do so, then that's between you and God, praise God. If you choose to eat, and it's not because you're, you're bound by any legalism that you had from a background, you don't see any problem with it, it doesn't bother you, it doesn't mean anything to you, and it has nothing to do in any negative way with your relationship to God, and you do so in full conscience, clear conscience before God, hey, that's good for you too. Make it more practical if you go to an R-rated movie or a PG movie or movies at all or watch TV or whatever, and you can do so with a clear conscience before God, then that's between you and God. Not between you and anybody else who tries to convince you otherwise. I'll give you a good example of this. Recently, we were having dinner not long ago with a friend who had come to faith in Christ a few years ago. 
born again by definition of the Bible, newfound freedom in Christ. Yet due to her Jewish background, she had some, as we like to say, some issues. And uh, one of those issues surfaced during our dinner. And the issue that surfaced during dinner was as she watched me chow down on shrimp cocktail, she gave me kind of a funny look and said, is it okay to eat shrimp as a Christian? Now, what's kind of interesting about that is there also were people at that table who were drinking a glass of wine with their dinner. But the wine never came up as a conversation point, and it wasn't something that she was sensitive of because it wasn't anything that was restrictive as far as her background is concerned. So the question that needed to be dealt with at that time is, is it okay for a Christian to eat shrimp, shellfish? I said, you know what? That's a great question. And, 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 you know, obviously understanding and knowing her background, she wasn't being judgmental or condemning when she asked the question, and I certainly didn't look down upon her because of the question that she asked. It was a wonderful time to just go through and talk about the freedom that we have in Christ, to challenge her to read Acts chapter 10, which deals specifically with this subject, and yet at the same time to appreciate and understand what she was com- coming from, not to judge her, criticize her, and she wasn't doing the same. But it was a wonderful time of fellowship where we received one another, accepted one another, and yet at that point in time, neither one of us were on the same page because obviously I'm looking at it saying, hey, I don't have a problem with it at all, and here's why. Acts chapter 10, it's no longer unclean. What God has cleansed, don't worry about it. That's great, you have freedom in Christ. But if she still had personal convictions about that, I wasn't the one to impose my convictions upon her I will allow God to do what he's going to do in her life over whatever timetable it takes to do that. But you know what? We can still receive one another and have fellowship with each other because God has received us in Christ. You know, we need to be careful about that. We need to be careful as we consider all the things that are going on in, you know, modern Christendom about, you know, the attitudes of a worship service, a Bible study, a Sunday school class, you know, every evening services and all these things that come up. And the point I want to make is this, and please listen carefully. If, if these are matters of one's personal conviction, they should not be a requirement for Christian fellowship. See, we've got to be very careful not to make our personal convictions with the Lord mandatory in the lives of those around us. Because where, where Scripture is silent as far as what is clearly right, what is clearly wrong, we have got to have an understanding of what it means for Christian liberty and charity and love and a time where each of us develop those convictions as God leads us through the study of his word and through the obedience of the conviction of our heart through the Holy Spirit who lives within those who have come to Christ in order to teach us God's truth. See, some standards and practices in local churches are traditional and they're not necessarily scriptural. And we've got to be very careful about that. I mean, I talked to older people who said they remember a day when the radio first came out that Christians weren't to listen to radio. And here's their reason. Because Satan is the prince of the power of the air. There are other churches who use what Bible translation you use as a point of fellowship. See, we've got to be very careful about that. And I I think one of the most beautiful illustrations of that is found in John chapter 21, when you have a chance to read it. But in essence, what happened was this. Jesus was calling Peter to follow him. And he said, you follow me. He said, will you follow me? And he said, yes, Lord, I'll follow you. And they said, tend my flock. He said, Peter, will you follow me? Yes, Lord, I'll follow you. And, 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 he was, you know, and he continued to answer him. And so Jesus was calling him to follow him. And Peter started to follow him. And, and, and as he was walking toward Jesus, John was there out of the corner of his eye. And he said, Lord, wait a minute. 
before I make too many commitments here, what about him? What kind of deal are you going to cut with him? Because, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to you know, lay too much on the table here if I don't have to. It's kind of like negotiating, you know. Well, uh, well who's going to sign first? Because we don't want to lay our cards on the table too soon. We'll wait for somebody else to sign a contract. Then we'll know what a contract's worth. And then we can negotiate and go from there. See, Peter had the same mentality. Hey, uh, what about this guy right here? Jesus' answer to him was the same answer to each one of us, and that's this. What does my will and direction in his life have to do with my will and direction in your life? You follow me. Don't worry about him. Don't worry about them. Don't worry about anybody else. You follow me. And if it's your conviction to do whatever it is that God's leading you to do, then you do it. Because him who knows the right thing to do, John 4, I mean James 4.17, and doesn't do it, to you it is sin before God. You follow the convictions that God places on your heart. And don't be looking for other people to try to validate what it is that you don't want to do or do want to do. It doesn't make any difference. If you want to go to everything that the world has to offer, then you go and do that. But don't be laying a guilt trip on people around you that aren't doing the same thing. And if you don't want to go to something, then you don't go to them and try to talk them out of going somewhere that God wants them to go. You leave them alone. And you let God work in their hearts. And you let God produce the growth in that person's life. You stop trying to impose your standards and judgments, and I should do the same thing. Don't impose our standards and judgments on other people. Allow God to do it because he's more than capable. We need to be very careful. Our first responsibility is to the Lord because it's he alone who will judge. Jesus Christ alone will judge. But you, why do you judge your brother? There's the question again. Or you again, why do you regard with your brother, your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, it's really important that we understand what judgment seat is being mentioned here. It's the judgment seat, the Bema seat of Christ. It is not the great white throne judgment. We know that from our study of the book of Romans that if you have come to faith in Christ, the Bible says there is now no, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. You and I will never have to answer for sin. Jesus Christ's death on the cross took care of sin, past, present, and future. We are told to confess our sin when we're guilty of sin, and he promises to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we need to recognize and understand, every one of God's people will never stand before the great white throne judgment to be condemned for sin. We already learned that the Lord is more than capable of sustaining those who have come to faith in Christ. It is he alone who sustains us, and on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection and nothing else, period. The judgment seat that he's talking about here is the judgment seat that each believer will stand before for the purpose of being rewarded by God for being faithful in our walks or our lives after we've come to faith in Christ. We are told to redeem the time wisely. We are told to get busy sharing the gospel with those around us. We are told to live our life in a manner and to produce good works in such a way that our Father in Heaven gets all of the glory. We are told many things we are supposed to be doing in the interim between either when Jesus comes back or the time that He calls us out and is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. The judgment will be for the purpose of rewards. And I'll guarantee you this. If you and I are busy judging one another instead of doing what we're told to do, there's only so much time in a day by which we can do any of these things. We better get busy doing what Jesus wants us to do and stop doing things that aren't on our job description list, which includes judging and condemning and criticizing one another. The Lord alone will judge. The second thing is that we're going to look at, and it has to do with the fact that we are to edify one another. R is for receiving, E is for edifying. Edifying in a simple, in a simple word means this, to build up. That's all it means. 
It means to build up. We're to build one another up. We're to build one another up. Why? Because look at this. We affect each other. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. You notice that? Not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in somebody's way. Here's the deal. When we start to judge one another on non-essentials and gray areas, we cause them to stumble in their walk with Christ. They start to get more hung up on whether it's okay to eat shellfish or shrimp or to drink a glass of wine or to go to a movie than all the other things that are clearly told in Scripture that we're supposed to do. We affect one another. We need to affect one another in a positive way. We're also, when you, look, when you stop and look at this, if we just stopped with receiving one another, it might give the impression that Christians were to leave each other alone, let the weak remain weak. But this second admonition says that, hey, you know what? If you're strong in your faith, you are to build up those who are weak in their faith but to do it in love and not, not in criticism and condemnation, to build them up in their faith, to challenge them and encourage them, like I said in that dinner, to be able to say, hey, you know what? Wow, that's, that's great that you're thinking about that. Now, read Acts chapter 10, and if you want to talk about it some more, let's talk about it. But when you go home, read it, pick up the word, read it yourself, and develop your own convictions as the Lord leads you in those areas of life. That's beautiful. We affect each other. We can do so in a positive way. We can do so in a negative way. We're to have proper priorities. Verse 16 through 18, it says, Hey, therefore do, not let what is, therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Notice that? For he who is in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Notice what he says. Don't be so hung up on all these non-essentials. Don't waste so much time dealing with all this stuff. For the kingdom of God is not whether you eat or drink. The kingdom of God is not whether you go to movies or not. The kingdom of God is not whether you go to a service and a Sunday school and an evening service and a small group. The kingdom of God is not any of these things. The kingdom of God is what? The kingdom of God is pursuing righteousness. The kingdom of God is peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It has to do with the eternals and not the non-essentials. To concentrate on the, on the eternals and not on the externals. We preach Christ and Him crucified. That's what we're to be doing. Don't be so hung up on all the rest of these things. Just like this election, man, we get so hung up on who's going to win and who's not going to win. Hey, don't ever forget that we still serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that, yeah, I have, I have definite opinion of who I'd like to see win, and I have a definite opinion of who I'd like, I'm praying for. And I, but you know what? But it's all in light of the fact that I also know that God is sovereign that he's a king of kings and he's lord of lords and he always will be even though presidents and kings and all the other earthly authority come and go. And the reason they come and go is because it's God who has destined or appointed the time in which they serve. Isn't that beautiful? So in the meantime, hey, let's keep our priorities straight. Let's stay focused on the Lord. Let's promote growth in not only our own life, but in the lives of one another. That's what the whole idea of rep has to do, to, to repeat this, promote growth, 19 through 21. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Let's not talk about the things that are going to cause disharmony and disunity. Let's talk about the things in which we agree. Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the power of His resurrection. Let's talk about the reality of sin and turning from sin and turning to God. Let's talk about all of those things that we can all agree to before we start to get off on a tangent of things that don't make any difference eternally. Promote growth in the lives of one another. Don't tear down the work of God for the sake of food. 
All things indeed are clean, but they're evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It's good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by what your brother stumbles. Let me give you an example, going back to that dinner. If that person sat there and said, man, it's really bothering me that you're eating shrimp in front of me. You know, some of us would say, well, grow up and pass the cocktail sauce. (laughs) But what God is saying is, hey, you know what? Then if that is going to cause you to be offended, then I'm willing to set that aside. I'm not going to allow that to be a stumbling block of our fellowship together. You know, I appreciate people say, well, do you mind if I have a glass of wine with my meal? I, I appreciate you saying that, but, you know, don't look for me to bless it one way or the other because that has to do with your personal conviction before the Lord. If you, if you have a clear conscience before God doing it, then, hey, then do what you want to do. But, you know, I almost feel like, you know, anywhere I go, people look at me like, is this okay? What do you mean, is this okay? Who am I? I mean, they, God didn't die and make me God. He's still God. If it's okay with you and him, then who am I to say it's not okay with me? You know, but if i got to drive you home because you're hammered... And, and, <laughs> and you throw up in the back seat of my car, then I'm stepping in, you know? But, but that's it. Oh, oh, maybe it has to do with this. Be gracious. Be, be gracious. You know, I mean, and that's really what it comes down to. We need to be gracious in our interaction with one another. Be gracious. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. You want a test of the gray areas in life? Here it is, very simply. If you can't do those things and have peace before God, when in doubt, don't. You got it? Simple. When in doubt, don't. If you can't drink alcoholic beverages without having conviction before God, when in doubt, don't. If you can't go to an R movie or a PG movie or movies at all, when in doubt, don't. If you don't have freedom in your relationship with Christ to do it, because him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. And it doesn't get clearer than that. It's beautiful when it comes to the non-essentials of life that the Bible doesn't clearly talk about. If you can't do it in clear conscience before God, don't do it. Let's close with this. And the last thing is P is for pleasing one another. Pleasing one another. Look at verse, uh, chapter 15. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach thee fell upon me. You notice that? We are to regard, have more regard for others and less regard for ourselves. We're to have this attitude in ourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. The attitude in Philippians 4 is one of what? Humility. Putting the needs of others before our own desires. Jesus endured the cross. He despised the shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him, which was the redemption of those who had put their faith and trust in him. See, Jesus put others first before his own desires. He emptied himself and he took on the form of a bondservant for the purpose of coming in the flesh and leaving the glory and the majesty of his rightful seat in heaven. And he took on the form of an appearance of a man so that he could die on the cross for those of us who would believe and trust in him. Sufficient for all mankind, but only applicable to those who believe in him. The Bible says by his death and by the power of his resurrection that he laid aside his rightful place and he came for our benefit. And so while we have freedom in Christ, 
we must also realize that it just isn't about us. If what we do causes another brother or sister in Christ to stumble, if what we do doesn't encourage them in their walk with the Lord and cause spiritual growth in their life, then we should step back and do that which is appropriate to bring them along in their faith. We should be gracious in our regard for others and our disregard for ourselves. You know, Paul shared the two sources of spiritual power from which we must draw if we're to live to please others. He says in verse 4, it's the Word of God, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Notice that, that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might find hope. Isn't that beautiful? How we can turn to a, a passage like Romans 14 and realize what we should be doing when we disagree with other believers and then have that choice of whether we'll be obedient or not and what we learn. What was written in the past is written for our benefit. So we'll have patience with those around us. We can look at the example that was laid out and say, you know, how did they respond when this division arose? What did they do? What conclusions did they come to? How did they conduct themselves? And in every case, they went back to the Word of God to be the ultimate tiebreaker of division and opinions. What God has clearly said, we will stand upon. What God has not clearly said and what he gives us principles to guide us, then we will go with those. And those principles are very simply, receive one another, accept one another, as God has accepted those who have come to faith in Christ. Edify one another, build each other up, and please others and not ourselves. Live to please others. You know, as I was trying to think of a way to wrap all of this up, I want to read to you a letter that came this past week from someone that was in a Bible study that I had taught once. He played for the Rams when they were here in Southern California. And he wrote me this letter, and I thought it ties in beautifully what we're talking about. The whole idea of receiving one another, edifying and building each other up, and living to please others and not just yourself. So kind of bear with it. It, it, You know, for some of you who think it's self-serving for me to read this, please don't look at it that way. Understand it from the context in which I'm sharing it. Because it is an example, did, we, did, did I always agree with this man's walk with Christ? Absolutely not. Did we differ in many areas? Certainly. And he, and he shares some of that. He says, Chuck, it's 2.03 a.m. Tuesday, and I'm sitting at my desk at home working on some Gibraltar development stuff for next year. And out of the blue, your name and face dropped into my spirit, and it's as though I heard God say, you have been blessed with a great friend. Chuck, thanks so much for simply being you. I have learned over the years now that there is nothing more encouraging in a Christian man's life than another man who has set a great example to follow. Even though we are 3,000 miles apart, I have moments when I feel that you are right here with me. He says, thanks for the great influence and impact you you have been and made in my life. God placed you in my life when I was young and still green in my Christian walk to show me the true makeup of a God fearing man one who stands his ground when need be, one who leads the pack if necessary, and one who will cry and have compassion to save a lost soul. May you continue to be the great example that you are to others as you've been to me. Always remember for the rest of your days, yes, you have made a difference in the life of David Rocker. And your impact is being felt in every school, prison, and church that I go into. Sacking souls for Christ. David Rocker. I can't tell you, no, no, don't. I, you know, I, I can't tell you how, how, what a blessing it is to get something like this. But none of us do that so that we can get something like this. We do what we do because it's the right thing to do. And many times we may never get 
something like this as an affirmation from a human being that what we're doing is right before God. But the reason I share that with you is because clearly he understood now in hindsight, man, there must have been a whole bunch of things in my life at that time that you put up with, but you love me anyway. So you received me as a brother in Christ. And when we were divided on certain things, you kept coming back to, you received me as a brother in Christ just as God has received me. Never got hung up on the differences, never got hung up on the cultural differences, never got hung up on the different Bible interpretations of certain things that could easily divide churches. Never got hung up on any of that, but you always concentrated on Christ and Him crucified. And you always build me up. You never tore me down. When He stepped out of bounds, if sin was involved, we've got to call it as it is. Sin is sin, and there's no changing that. And we need to understand and recognize that. That what God condemns, God's people also condemn. What God commands, God's people also command. But where God does not clearly say, we allow for God and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the other believer to develop convictions and to bring that person along in their personal growth. Where we would cause another to stumble, we will step aside and say, Lord, I live to please that person and not myself. We need to be doing our reps. We need to become more disciplined in our walk with Christ. We need to receive one another. We need to edify and build each other up. And we need to live to please not only God, but to please others. And as we're doing our reps, that God will get all the glory. Father, we just thank you for your word. We just thank you for your truth. And I just pray that uh, each one of us, as we're convicted even as we're here this morning and this day, and as we listen to your words, are convicted of questionable areas in our life where we continue to act even though we have no clear conscience before you that we'll confess that sin, that we'll repent from it, and that we'll turn and trust you. When in doubt, we won't. Or when in doubt, don't. But Lord, where we have freedom of conscience and a clear heart and conscience before you, God, we just thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ that's in his death and his resurrection by which we find forgiveness. It's in the finished work of Christ and in him alone that we're made right before God. And we just praise you and thank you for that. We thank you it's not based on works or how we live or things we do or don't do, or more importantly, even the attitudes and the judgment of other believers. God, we just thank you that you're able to make us stand. And we just thank you and we praise you. We ask that we would just use this time more effectively for the furthering of your kingdom than we do for the time that we spend judging one another. God, forgive us of that. We just pray for unity. Your word tells us, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name.